0: Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 22 again. We're right in the middle of the section of the Last Supper, the account of the Last Supper. We saw the uh, the um, institution of the Lord's Supper and the last Passover last week, and now we move on to the discussion that follows that between Jesus and his disciples in chapter 22, verses 24 to 34 today. <coughs> Jesus said earlier in his ministry, and actually repeated it uh, more than once, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. That truth is one of the most profound things that Jesus ever said. It is a principle that has profound application to everything about our lives. It is Christian living 101, the most basic truth. Indeed, some parts of life, like marriage, for example, I think, seem impossible to live out successfully until this principle is learned and applied. That he who seeks to save or treasure or hold on to his own life will lose it. He who loses his life, for my sake, gives it away, lets it go, will find it. In our text this morning, I think Jesus is applying that principle, though he doesn't say it here, applying that principle of losing our life in order to find it to the matter of leadership in his kingdom. Let me read verse 24. Also a dispute arose among them, that is the eleven, As to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers, but he replied, "Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death." And Jesus answered, "I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me deny three times that you know me." Well, there's two sections here, really. There's the uh, the first part of the discussion, and then the Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you. That whole part of the discussion. So we divide it there, and there are two truths. The first is this: true greatness. Is found in serving. True greatness is found in serving. We all seem to desire greatness. Uh, Just for fun, thinking about this yesterday, I just uh, went online and did a little Google, uh, did a little Amazon.com search to say how many books are there are there about greatness and how to pursue greatness, and I did a little search of 3,060 books I found, with titles like. Greatness, who makes history and why? Or the talent code, greatness isn't born, it's grown. Here's how. Or from Fortune magazine, Fortune, secrets of greatness. And the list goes on for pages and pages and pages. Now, the disciples were like us. They wanted to know greatness, they wanted to be great. And so, in the middle, here in the middle of the Last Supper, at the most profound Time, the most significant moment. In the middle of this, here they are, talking about their desire for greatness. Apparently, they sensed Jesus' kingdom was close at hand, and so they were preoccupied with speculation as to who will occupy the greatest positions in the kingdom. Actually, this was an old dispute with this group. They had argued about that back in chapter 9. Uh, On another occasion, Mark records that James and John had come to Jesus secretly and said, now when your kingdom comes, could we have the position to sit at your right hand and your left hand? We only want to be the two most important people in your kingdom. And then Matthew tells us that their mother came to Jesus and asked the same thing. Apparently, the more the disciples perceived the nearness of Christ's kingdom, the more they jockeyed for positions of greatness in it. But Jesus was concerned that they learn that true greatness is found in humble service. And so here Jesus contrasts two models of greatness. First, in the world, he says the great are commonly defined as those who have authority to lord it over others verse 25 the kings of the gentiles lorded over them those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors the word used to describe this uh, leadership is simply the verb form of the word lord which the, that's the common word for master but The meaning changes slightly. It does in English, and it also does in Greek. The meaning changes slightly when we move from a noun describing someone's position, well, he's the Lord, to a verb describing someone's actions and attitudes, he lords it over people. Same word, different meaning. Mark, in his parallel account, makes this crystal clear. He uses a compound form of this same word, but the word Mark uses can only mean... The exercise of dominion over or against someone for one's own advantage. And That's exactly the kind of leadership which has become the norm in the world. Whether in business, or in government, or in family life, or in civic affairs. In fact, people in power would argue that this is the only way you can get things done. Leadership is... The exercise of power and the authority to coerce people to do what you want them to do. That is leadership in the eyes of much of the world. Jesus goes on to say that those who rule in such a way call themselves benefactors. For they rule that way for the good of the people uh, that, that, that they rule. And so history is filled with leaders who assume they know better than the people that they rule and presume to heap upon their subjects burden after burden for their own good. That's what Voltaire thought to be the ideal. The best government is a benevolent tyranny, he said. C.S. Lewis warns that of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. For those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience." This worldly model of greatness is everywhere around us. This is how governments function. This is how most businesses function. This is how many churches function. In fact, it's the way many homes function. For this is how many men see their role as fathers and husbands, lording it over their families for their own good, of course. But I'm in charge here and you'll do it my way. I know best you must listen to me, I don't have to listen to you. And so kids grow up having learned to lord it over whoever they have the opportunity to lord it over, considering such wielding of power to be a sign of greatness. This greatness. And we wonder why bullying has become such a problem in schools. And why there's so much domestic violence against women and children, and why even women growing up under the same model now do the same things more and more. It's no great mystery when we define leadership as simply the autocratic wielding of power to serve my agenda. But Jesus sets before his disciples a quite different model of greatness another kind of leadership and this second model of greatness is nothing less than the example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself now let's be clear here before we get into that very far jesus is not denying that some people rule rule and that some have greater authority than others jesus certainly didn't deny his own authority And he had chosen these apostles and given them authority. In verse 28, he says, you stuck by me through tough times. In verse 29 and 30, you will rule in my kingdom. He had given them that authority. He had authority. He had given them that authority. Jesus never denies the validity of authority, whether in the world or in his church. He is only concerned that it be exercised in his kingdom differently than it's typically exercised in the unbelieving world. So we misconstrue Jesus' teaching. If we think he's calling for a world without structure, or life without rules, or societies without leaders... or or, or leaders without any authority. Where that's been tried, it's resulted in anarchy at best, and probably despotism, as the wicked seize upon a vacuum of leadership to assert themselves. What Jesus is addressing is what the exercise of his authority must look like. Specifically, true greatness is found in humble service. Now Jesus makes this point by using a couple of uh, e- examples. First he talks about being like the youngest. That's children. The youngest among us. We love our children, we love our youth. But we also know that children automatically live lives of submission. No one listens or respects their views very much. Adults know more. They're not very interested. The youth have little power to bring about anything they want to happen. They're always having to submit to somebody else's authority, whether parents or teachers or even older siblings. But Jesus says, if you want to really be great, you must become like these, the youngest of us. Remember, he said on another occasion when they were arguing about greatness, and Jesus got a child, and he said it before them, and he says, unless you become like this child, you won't even see the kingdom of heaven. True greatness is found in childlike humility and service. Well, then Jesus goes on to the model to model greatness after a servant. If children have a tough, servants have a tougher. They're not young and immature like children, they're adults like everyone else, but they have no clout. They have no way to press their agenda or pursue their desires. Instead, they're always serving someone else's needs. They're always submitting their will to the will of a, of a, of a boss or a or, or master. They're always obligated to do what other people think is right. In fact, they're obligated to do the things that other people don't want to do, the dirty work. But Jesus presents himself as a servant, not a boss. One who takes the lowly place, not the one who wields power. He says here, who, who has, is the most prominent? The, the person sitting at the table eating dinner? Or the servants that are waiting on his table? Well, clearly it's the person sitting at the table, right? But I have come to you and reveal myself to you as one who is a servant that waits on the table. According to John's account of the Last Supper, it's about this time that Jesus takes off his coat and takes off his shirt and wraps a towel around his waist and picks up the basin and gets down on his knees and starts washing his disciples' filthy feet. That was servant's work. No self-respecting head of household would ever get down with a basin and towel and wash someone's feet. Jesus did, and he explained it. He said, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example so that you should do what I have done to you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than, Than his master. You see here Jesus applies. This principle. Of dying. To live. To this matter of. Leadership. To this pursuit. Of greatness. If you try to lord it over people. You will never know greatness. You will never lead well. But if you humble yourself to serve those you lead to wash their feet to give your life for them you'll find your life being filled with greatness years later peter who was here and who john tells us had a little trouble with this foot washing business peter showed he had learned this truth as he passed it on to the elders of the church in his first epistle he writes to the elders among you i appeal as a fellow elder a witness of Christ's suffering and one who, will, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Serving as overseers. Not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock. True greatness is found in humble service. That's the first truth. Then there's a second truth here in the second part, and that is this. God prepares us to serve through our weaknesses. God prepares us to serve through our weaknesses you know no matter what career field you uh, wish to enter you will find that there's some procedure to get there some hoops you have to jump through to get uh, to reach that goal it probably involves a certain amount of formal education perhaps some additional technical training Uh, it may uh, uh, include some apprenticeship or some internship there may even be some Mandatory continuing education. But in most every field of endeavor, endeavor, people uh, have laid out what is required for someone who wants to uh, do this. Well, the Lord has a different way of equipping us to serve him. It certainly may involve some formal training. It may involve internships and service assignments. But here we see that beyond all such programs... God prepares us to serve using our weaknesses. Or to say it another way, God equips us in the crucible of uh, experiencing our failures and his grace. What's going on here is that Jesus knows the trouble which was ahead for him and his disciples. He knew that his arrest and trial and suffering and death would stress them to the breaking point. He understood the fear that would overwhelm them. He understood the anger that would burn within them when they saw this injustice. He understood the disillusionment that would poison their thinking. He understood the helpless despair that they would, would feel and the shame which all of those things would, would produce in them as they saw their faith shaken. And so in verse 31, Jesus warned them, Simon, Simon, Satan has, has asked to sift you as wheat. Now at first this sounds like Jesus is addressing this warning to Simon Peter alone. But that's not the case. The you here in verse 31 is plural. It's plural. Down south they would not just say, Simon has asked to sift y'all. It would be Simon has asked to sift all y'all. Or in Jersey they would say, all you guys. The point is, Jesus knows that terrible trials are ahead for all of his disciples. And that trouble will not just come as kind of a chance occurrence of some bad circumstances, wrong place, wrong time. Satan himself wants to test them. It actually says, Satan has asked to sift you. That's right. Satan cannot trouble us without God allowing that. The book of Job makes that crystal clear. But just as clearly, God was going to allow Satan to test, sift his disciples. To sift them like wheat, to throw them up in the air and beat them around and see what flies away. And he will allow Satan to test you, too. And make no mistake, Satan's purposes are not noble. He means to destroy. He had already entered into Judas to destroy him, but he wants more. He wants Peter. He wants the rest of the eleven. He wants you. And we don't often think of trouble in these terms... And indeed, every temptation we face is not Satan personally confronting us. We can't just say, well, it's not my fault, the devil made me do it. The Bible teaches that uh, we're usually tempted when we're drawn away by our own flesh and enticed, or when we're pressured to conform to the mold of the world around us. But the scripture also warns That Satan goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's not a myth. That's not just poetic language. Satan desires to sift you, test you, bring you down. What does that experience look like if we encounter it? Well, I was reading Philip Ryken's commentary, and he has such a down-to-earth description. Let me just read his description. Here's how he describes it. Satan's demonic influence is there in the selfish move we make to keep what we have for ourselves rather than giving it away for Jesus. It is there in a ministry conflict that tempts us to quit, go somewhere else. It's there in the sudden impulse to click on the link to the pornographic website. It's there in the secret resentment that we have towards someone's spiritual leadership, whether in the home or in the church. It's there in the temptation to give up on a difficult relationship. It's there in the despair we feel about ever making progress against the main sin that seems to dominate our heart's daily agenda. Satan and his demons are always lurking in the shadows, desperately hoping that one day we will walk away from Christ completely. And so Reichen concludes, one of the most dangerous things in the world would be to think that we're not in any danger. But that's exactly what Peter thought. After Jesus had addressed all his disciples, he singled out Peter. In verse 32, the U is now singular, not plural. He told Peter he was praying for him, that his faith would not fail in the time of testing. But Peter as much as said, you don't need to pray for me, Lord. Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and death. I'm not in any danger. But Jesus knew how weak Peter really was. And so Jesus told him about the failure which was looming in his life. Before the rooster crows today, you will deny, me, deny three times that you know me. We'll get to that incident in a, in a couple of weeks. But you see, Jesus knew what he was talking about. Peter was not strong enough to stand against the wiles of the devil. He was not. He wasn't even strong enough to stand against the questions of a servant girl. So what's going on here? Why did God allow this testing? What was Jesus' prayer uh, would be the result? What was he praying would be the result? What was God's purpose in all of this? If he's in control of it, what was God's purpose in all of this trouble? Well, Jesus doesn't leave us wondering. He tells us right there at the end of verse 32. I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back strengthen your brothers brothers strengthen your brothers this is the goal which Jesus had in mind for which he was willing to have his disciples severely tested indeed for which he was willing to even see Peter fall fail be a disaster Jesus was equipping Peter to minister to serve his brethren. God prepares us to serve us through our weaknesses. For that's when we come to know his grace. Now I'm not making this up. The Apostle Paul teaches us this very clearly in Second Corinthians 12. Paul had a thorn in his flesh. There's much speculation of what that is. We think maybe it was bad eyesight. Some people said it was gout. Most most everybody kind of uh, uh, projects on Paul, whatever their little problem that they deal with all the time is. We don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Here's how Paul described it, though. He called it a messenger of Satan sent to torment me. And so the Apostle Paul asked God to take it away. That's a reasonable request. Why could God possibly want a messenger of torment, uh, a messenger of Satan tormenting his apostle? Take it away, Lord. Remove it from me, Lord. Set me free from this, Lord. And, and the Lord said, no. He never gave him relief. Instead, God showed him the greatness of his grace, that it was sufficient for every day's struggle. God equipped him for service in that crucible of his weakness, encountering God's grace. And God's work was so effective in Paul that a little later he writes, That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. See, that's what Peter had to learn yet. When he thought he was strong, he would prove to be weak. But when he saw how weak he really was, God would prove his grace sufficient to make him strong. And God would work that out to prepare Peter for a life of serving Christ Jesus. Folks, we don't know one another's real troubles very much. I know if you're out of work, probably. But no one sees the fiercest battles of our souls. But this text gives us real hope in our day of trouble. First, there's encouragement here in hearing that the Lord knows about it. Not only does he know he's allowed it to happen, he knows about the temptation. He's allowed the temptation. He's allowed the struggle. Then there's a comfort to know that Jesus is praying for us. We don't see him doing that, but Romans 8 tells us that. Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews tells us that, that Jesus is at the Father's right hand interceding for us. You're not in that trouble alone. And finally, there's great hope in our darkest hour, for Jesus has a good goal in mind. He's not out to destroy us, though Satan is. He is equipping us through our weaknesses, through our failures, through being cast upon his grace, through the experience of that grace. He is equipping us to serve him. So don't despise the trial. Don't despair in your weakness. Don't cave in and lose your faith. Call upon the Lord who promises us grace to help in time of need. Jesus said, he who seeks us to save his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. That's true of every Christian. And it's especially true of those God calls to positions of greatness, or of leadership. For true greatness is found not in lording it over people, but in serving, washing feet. And God prepares us for that service through our weaknesses, by allowing us to fail, allowing us to come to the end of ourselves, so that we can see his grace at work. It's all part of the dying to self that we might live the resurrected life of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your promise to never leave us or forsake us. Though we know that in our dark times, in our terrible trials, we feel very alone. <clears throat> we probably feel hopeless. But I pray, Lord, you would call to our mind what your word says, that we're not alone, that... Uh, you have a purpose in all of that, and I pray that you would deliver us from the attitude, the desire to be great and to lord it over others and give us the desire to serve. and teach us, Lord, by your grace, coming to our rescue, teach us to be gracious to those we serve. It's easy to talk about these things, Father, but only you could work it in our life, and we ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.